Podcast. Well, so uh, my name is Oke Ndibe, and uh, it's such a delight to welcome you to a rejuvenated uh, podcast. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, Emeka Onyawadai started a, web, uh, a podcast. Um, that podcast did make some very interesting uh, contributions to the political conversation, cultural and social conversations in Nigeria. Um, but then we're now coming back in a more uh, coordinated, focused way uh, to do uh, a podcast, which in a lot of ways is a continuation of what we did before, uh, but also uh, new in other ways. And so this podcast is um, called uh, Offside Musings. Uh, for those of you who have followed my writings, uh, my columns in Nigerian papers, you will recognize uh, that name, uh, that my column, which ran for about 10 years in the Sun uh, newspaper in Nigeria, and which was widely uh, syndicated, uh, was called Offside Musings. And so this is a rebirth. Emekawa uh, has been really uh, terrific in inviting me to restart my um, uh, conversation uh, with Nigerians and with other people who are interested uh, in Nigeria um, regarding that country's political, social, cultural, uh, and just broad development. As we all know, Nigeria is facing perhaps its most difficult test uh, in history. We um, have a country that is beset by uh, violence, not just political violence, but political violence is a, a big uh, aspect, a big, a big sector of the kind of violence we have in Nigeria. But there is just the violence that is also produced by economic and social dislocations, by sort of the breakdown of values in the country. And so uh, this podcast um, undertakes to systematically uh, place itself in the Nigerian conversation uh, to look at uh, all the issues uh, pertaining to Nigeria, to look at issues of um, the country's political survival, if any. And um, we all know that this is an urgent question that Nigeria is currently uh, in the midst of all kinds of forces that are pulling uh, away from the country, that there are agitations in different parts of the country uh, um, to break away and to create other entities, whether it's the Oduduwa uh, Republic or Biafra. And so we're going to talk about this. We're also going to talk about uh, cultural values in Nigeria. Um, as we know, over the years, Nigeria has been besieged, um, I will say, by uh, values that are particularly inhospitable to development. Um, we have seen a decline in educational standards. We have seen corruption in the educational. Um, some years ago, I wrote a column called Sexually Transmitted Degrees. And this came from a conversation that I had with, um, with a colleague of mine in Nigeria who told me that regularly 
um, teachers, professors, um, lecturers in Nigeria's secondary and tertiary institutions have taken to either taking um, financial bribes from their students or in some cases uh, sleeping with their students in exchange for grades. And so we find this uh, affecting every sector of the country so that as this friend of mine suggested, we have lots of people in Nigeria who are engineers, engineers or medical doctors who really don't know the first thing about engineering or medicine, who simply slept their way or bribe their way to these degrees. And so the consequences of such acts, of such trends, uh, for the well-being of a country are, um, are you know, quite immense. So these are some of the issues that we have to examine. We also have to examine other cultural trends. The fact, for example, that wealth, money, uh, materialism have been placed at center of the, of the being, if you like, of the national ethic uh, in the country and the celebration of, uh, of wealth um, divorced from the legitimacy of the means of the accumulation of that wealth and also divorced from uh, moral uh, values and so on. So we want to really um, begin to, um, in every episode, uh, examine the ways in which trends that have been um, building up in Nigeria and have achieved a critical mass have created uh, dysfunction, uh, have created um, a, a very defective uh, social space, have uh, deformed our political um, uh, sector and indeed every other sector in the country. Um, so the, the aim of the podcast is not only to uh, dissect the problems, is not only to point at the problems. Uh, we also uh, intend in uh, every episode to propose solutions uh, to the problems that we have. Um, we're going to look at religion uh, numerous times because religion has become a very vexed and a very problematic issue in Nigeria. Uh, anybody who knows anything about me will know that I'm a deep, uh, that my faith is deeply important for me. But I also recognize that in Nigeria, we have a system where in the name of God, people commit all kinds of crimes and all kinds of uh, really reprehensible acts. Um, so we're going to look at this uh, sort of disjunction between people's profession of religious faith and their own actions, the sort of the hypocrisy, the contradictions between what people profess to believe and what their public uh, conduct is. Um, so we are really um, deeply excited uh, to have these periodic conversations, um, hopefully every week, uh, but at least we're going to shoot initially for every other week. Uh, Nigeria calls for this kind of uh, constant, um, frequent engagement. Um, we are aware, uh, talking about politics, of um, the growing conversation around uh, 2023, when Nigeria is going to have its next general elections. 
And so there are lots and lots of candidates coming out. Uh, some of them are well-known, some of them not so well-known. And so part of what we have to do is to engage in that conversation and see um, the ways in which the candidates who have come, their platforms and so on, either represent um, dangerous uh, signs for the country or perhaps a little bit of hope. We're also going to talk about constitutional matters, you know, how um, does it even make sense to sustain the entity that we call Nigeria? And if we have to sustain that entity, on what uh, grounds um, would that entity uh, be structured? And so this is um, going to be hard-hitting. It's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. In fact, we want it to make a lot of people uncomfortable because it is only when uh, you're uncomfortable that um, you pay attention, think about issues. We're not going to claim uh, um, any form of um, universal wisdom. We don't have all the answers, but hopefully we'll raise enough questions. And in raising those questions, we're going to invite Nigerians to become part of this vital process of examining um, the future of their country. Uh, if that country has a future, what are the paths to take? Uh, and the responsibility of each informed citizen in order to achieve the Nigeria of our dream. And if the Nigerian dream is absolutely extinct, if it is infeasible, uh, then perhaps paths to achieve uh, a harmonious um, uh, breakup of the country into as many units as people want to uh, want to have. So it's my particular delight uh, to welcome all of you. As I said, in a lot of ways, you are part of the conversation. Uh, for every episode, would hope to hear back from you. Um, we're going to try and make the podcast uh, relatively short. Um, and there is also going to be every week uh, an accompanying column uh, that would examine some of the issues that we, uh, we, we discuss. So that those of you who are more interested in reading would then see those issues um, uh, in the written form. And those of you whose um, favorite medium is to listen uh, to podcasts would then also uh, find this station uh, useful. Um, so, um, buckle up, brace yourselves for what promises to be a very provocative and thought-provoking series of conversations in Offside Musings. Thank you very much, and we hope that you'll join us going forward. We're back, we're back, we're back, we're back, we're back. Yes, 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 yes. Excitement in my voice, definitely. It's been a long hiatus season. It has been. Yeah. But, but there's no better time uh, to renew the conversation than, than now. I 100% agree. Um, if I was in oblivion before, I thank God for the multitude of voice social applications that currently exist. Yes. Um, it 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 and obviously the most um the rave of early this year was um has been I think Clubhouse, um where it's like Twitter for for voices but Twitter also has its Twitter voices and stuff. It is um 
capturing the mood, feeling the vibe, um, bridging that gap for those of us that don't live there in Nigeria. When I say there in Nigeria, West Africa, um, you know, fully, uh, we don't, even though we, we try to visit as much, um, but um, it's it's feeling that vibe and, and people are questioning their, the political future, the future, usually the political future of the country. It's a massive question. I don't, you, you, you get that. And, and, you know, I don't know, what sense do you get of it though? Of, well, Nigeria is in a bad place. Um, but to say that we need a certain context, because Nigeria has been in, in a place for a long time. Uh, it's in a particularly uh, dangerous patch because of the f- massive failures of the current political leadership uh, led by Muhammad Buhari. Okay? Uh, there were people who had all kinds of expectations for Buhari's presidency. I, I wasn't one of those. Um, I always felt that the emergence of the, um, of the APC as a political party was, um, was, was problematic. Um, as I argued at the time, uh, APC seemed to me to be a faction of the PDP that rebaptized itself APC in order to continue to misrun Nigeria. Uh, so there were all kinds of people who felt that change was coming. Um, and I remember having a conversation on Ben Television in London, and um, and I said to, to to my audience at the time, I said, "What does change mean? Because change is not necessarily good." Okay, um, if somebody if 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 a, somebody is driving recklessly, and the drivers who have run Nigeria, who have driven Nigeria, have been rest. And somebody says, hey, um, you know, it's about five drivers have driven this car that is called Nigeria and they've driven it recklessly. We need a change. Give it to me. So we need to ask the person uh, what kind of change it is going to represent because it's actually it's possible that the person says things. The previous drivers have not been reckless enough. Let me show them recklessness. So Nigeria was badly run. Nigeria has been extremely uh, unfortunate in its leaders. When Buhari was proposing himself as change, I kept saying to Nigerians, we, you need to find out what does he mean by change. So at political rallies, um, he will raise a broom. You know, he was going to sweep out the past and inaugurate this change. But I kept saying to people that a broom does not represent any political statement that is meaningful in any way. It does not represent a manifesto. It does not represent uh, a vision of how to get from where we were to where you want to take us. Uh, So the country is in a particularly bad patch. Okay, It has been in a bad patch for a long time in its history. Um, In fact, from its very founding, Nigeria uh, was misconceived from its very foundation. Um, and so when the British drew together in excess of 200 and something, 250, some people uh, 
uh, estimate. I mean, some people distinctly um, list over 371 distinct languages. But yeah. Well, you know. so the, it's, it's interesting because, again, we don't know Nigeria's population. We think about 200 million. So if you have 300 and something languages, there's actually uh, a study, uh, I think led by a German linguist who proposed that Nigeria had 400 and something languages. It's interesting because every day I encounter people who's, who tell me that they are from some ethnic group, cultural ethnic group that I've never heard about in Nigeria. So Nigeria is clearly a very diverse population. Diversity should not be a problem. Diversity actually could energize an entity, okay? But the problem is that from the moment of its foundation, the British did not set out to create a nation in Nigeria. The British set out to create an, a huge entity, which was their possession. Yes, pretty okay? much. And they wanted a to exploit the resources of this entity, and also they sell the goods and services that they produce in England um, in this entity to sort of enjoy uh, what you might call a monopoly. Um, and then a series of factors, uh, both you know, struggle by Nigerians as well as changing dynamics in the world, led to what we call independence. At the moment of independence, you had all kinds of problems. Okay, uh, the nation called Nigeria was not concrete in any way. Um, it was the place of our political leaders to create that nation. They failed at the task. What they began to do instead was to uh, arrogate to themselves all the privileges that the British had enjoyed. So you, you found this rupture where the leaders, the elite that inherited political power in Nigeria, really in their corruption were as foreign to the space as the British were to the space. So and they saw poorer Nigerians as simply there to serve them rather than um, partners in the transformation of this space. They are so, so, neocolonialism. Precisely. Yeah. So, so, you know, so we haven't, um, do, you know, it's easy because people have little sense of history in Nigeria. And at some point we're going to talk about the fact that Nigeria has banned the study of history. Okay. Very true. The consequences. That needs to be to be to be explained in, in a whole <laughs> podcast what are the what are the, what's the meaning i think it needs a whole a whole it, a whole it, study it, it, it needs <laughs> how bad it is it actually needs several uh, yes. sessions right what does it mean when a people are told that the study of history is useless okay and so what we have in nigeria therefore is that there is very little understanding of the historical development of the country, okay? And so when many Nigerians talk about their country, they talk about their country from the point of view of what happened today. And I think we understand Nigeria because uh, this thing happened today. Mm -hmm. Some policemen beat up some people or some governor stole money and they think this has never happened. <laughs> and, and so they... The, f the inability of Nigerians to understand 
the history of their country and therefore to understand that Buhari is part of a trend. But there is nothing unique about Buhari. You know, Buhari recognized how Obasanjo ran, ran the country, how Babangida ran the country, how Buhari ran the country the first time with what's going on today, that Nigeria has been structured in a way to attract the worst elements uh, in leadership. But you, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is you have a lot of people who see it for what it is, see it from that angle, mm-hmm. um, a lot of those conversations. Um, but you still have, you know, back to that, people don't understand the historical context. You still have a lot of people who, eh, well, the country is not okay, but, well, you know, it, 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 they make it seem um, like at a point in time it was okay. Mm. And, you know, people... Um, the the ills of 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 um, poverty, what I like to call it, because I I feel like a lot of the things happening now in the country, when you look at the insecurity, the distance, um, which is the next thing we're going to get to, um, a lot of them are just the ills. Even though we we've never had a census in the country, I don't know. We've had you, we could go back to the first um, uh, census, the 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 the, the um, riots that came out of those censors in fact at a point in time they declared some numbers mm-hmm. then they changed the numbers and then the beginning of the last part of so the second time or the third time they used uh, the military to, to quell the census riots that came out uh, this was then in the 60s you know y- y- we, we we do at least even if we don't know the number we do know one thing that we have a very high birth rate about I think it's um, um, 5.3 per couple on in Nigeria, which is an exploding young population, I think mm-hmm. by most accounts it's sixty four percent under yeah. twenty five. Yes. Um, you know, people who have a path to much, except maybe you leave the country, um, you go into um, this thing, or you 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 want to you we, they use all these terms in terms of hammer in terms. So the qu- the, the, yeah. the the point is, you know, where colloquial terms a hammer eats money all these things everybody wants to you know so so, so the 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 point the, the, the this thing is um a good part of having these conversations is also to to put out there in the discourse of um the lack of um institutions mm-hmm. in the country yes. um whether you look at it whether whichever some people are like well it was great or they don't want to admit it when you say anything like there are no institutions, that kind of things, mm-hmm. um, is to put out there um, uh, in terms of, of that. Um, and people would say, you know, the way the political climate, okay, Buhari is bad. What next? Is the next person coming up mm-hmm. going to be, yes. you know, we had this conversation in, in, in season one. We talked about how people would talk about Moalu and well, I'm not going to waste my votes, yes. uh, would be the same. Um, like people don't want to make a stand mm. and it's imperative that we, we I don't know is there a future where you see where people politically where I mean just destination wise where people would would eventually could stand up mm-hmm. and say make a political stand well um, not only is it possible but it's the only way that Nigeria has any future so you've pointed um, to several factors that are important when we consider Nigeria. You've pointed to the um, predominant uh, 
youthfulness of the Nigerian demographic. When you have 64% of the population under 30, okay, um, then it says, what does it say to you? It says that anything that is going to happen in that country is going to be driven by the consciousness, by the um, vision, by the energy, the passion of that predominant uh, demographic, right? But this is the demographic, demographic, unfortunately, that's been most traumatized by Nigeria. Uh, that there was a time post-independence where the values in Nigeria, the values that animated the space we call Nigeria, were always inorganic. Because we did not, as I said, Nigeria is a construction of the British. So we did not consciously, we, we were not lucky to have founding fathers who will say, this, these are what, these are the values that, um, that, 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 that we are spoused to. These are the values that, uh, on which this nation, this polity is to be based. So, so we've, in a sense, made it up as we went. So every day, if you, if you, if you had a leader who had a little bit of sense of decency, then that percolated down, a little bit of sense of decency. And then you had a rogue as, a, as his successor and determined... Uh, a kind of um, a kind of pollution, moral pollution within the system. So we, there's, if you ask a Nigerian, what does Nigeria mean? Uh, there is either antinous to that concept, or to the point that there is a content to it. That content is is very negative. Nigeria is a place somebody will tell you where everybody is fighting to get along. Okay, to and to get along to make more, right? Uh, because it's when you make more money that that in in a country where basic facilities are unavailable. So if you want security for yourself, you have to build a mansion which you then cure and then you plant some. Yeah, arms. You, you start with the fence first. Precisely, you build this long first. Precisely, <laughs> you start with the fence, then you put some higher security at your gate to keep away possible criminals, right? If you want good education for your children, you feel enough money to send them to private schools in Nigeria, and once they, they graduate, to send them to schools in the, in, in abroad, right? Yep. Uh, so, so we wreck our country in order to be able to send our children abroad. If you need uh, good medical service in Nigeria, no Nigerian leader, no Nigerian governor, or president will be caught dead in any Nigerian hospital. So when a Nigerian governor gets sick, when a Nigerian minister gets sick, when the Nigerian president gets sick, gets sick, they fly them abroad. So and there's no sense of shame. There are countries in the world that have no business being in the same conversation in development as Nigeria, but their presidents that politicians receive medical treatment within that space, not in Nigeria. So we go abroad. So you see that to the extent that there are any values in Nigeria, it is this um, um, pathological uh, commitment to 
stealing as much as possible within Nigerian space in order to secure yourself within the country or in order to have access to the outside world when you need certain services, either for yourself or for your family. And so, so it behooves the young ones to become part of the political conversation. What do they do? For the most part, in elections, they lend themselves out as thugs to politicians who have destroyed their lives, who are committed to further destruction of their lives. So they let, lend themselves as thugs, lend themselves out to rig elections, to write false results for people who are destroying your life, right? And, um, and then they sing the praises of these inheritors of fraudulent power. Okay, so the education, and for me, this is what it's all about, the education of that critical sector of young Nigerians to say to them that to the extent that you defer to these gerontocrats who have ruined your lives and ruined the nation, to that extent, you are collaborating in your own self-destruction. And of course, a lot of Nigerians always feel that hope of God, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't have the means today, but tomorrow God is going to bless me and I'll hammer. As I say, <laughs> okay? uh, maybe tomorrow I'm going to know somebody who will become a minister, commissioner, governor, and he'll give me a contract. I'll hammer. I'll make money. Um, so that's one. The other thing is this sense of despair. A lot of Nigerians look at Nigeria and they say, it can be helped. And Nigeria's problems are so profound, have been so ba back breaking that there is, yeah, so it, it breaks your back. So when you contemplate what you must do as a citizen, it can feel overwhelming. But guess what? Which is why people come up with the easy answer. They say, oh, Biafra is the answer. Or Duduwa Republic is the answer, right? Uh, breaking up the country is the answer. But what I tell them, if those are the answers, what's the question? If what you're looking for is uh, a dynamic democracy, is a vitalization of, of development, it is possible that Biafra would be the answer. It's possible that Oduduwa Republic would be the answer. It's possible that the Arewa, the House of Fulani, would do better on their right. But even so, they must struggle to create that space. Right? So I lived as a child during the Biafran War. A lot of the vast majority of Biafran saw hell within Biafra. Mm -hmm. So here was food, relief material donated by the world to us because we were starving. Mm -hmm. I saw firsthand the depth of suffering during Biafra. Yet, during this war, Biafran officials were stealing the food that had been donated by international agencies well and they were selling that food. So you go to the market, you find bags of rice, bags of beans with the stamp, not for sale, and it was being sold. Okay? And, and then Biafran officials were taking too much of the food for themselves, for their families, for their friends, and let the vast majority suffer and die. So if we had achieved Biafra, we would have had to struggle within Biafra to achieve 
sense of equity. A sense of equity and justice, okay, to achieve a vibrant democracy, achieve meaningful development. But some people just say, say, oh, if we have Biafra, then we'll be fine. And I say, you have Biafra, the same Igbo politicians who today contribute to the mess in the country are the ones who will run Biafra. Okay? Unless somehow you have made arrangements to to parcel them to other parts of the world, <laughs> as it were. But, but to the extent that they are going to be part of the system, guess what? They will be the ones with the means, with the connections to become governors, to become presidents, to become ministers, and so on and so forth, within the collectivity called Biafra. And the problems will continue. Then you see people from Imo State or Anambra State saying, now we want to <laughs> declare Anambra State a nation of its own. Yeah, because we hate people from Imo, we hate people from Abia. And then you do that. And the people say, so complacency um, does not work. So um, throughout the series that, that we're going to run, mm -hmm. we're going to engage with a question of what is the responsibility of young people to seize their own fate and their future and, and to rebuild the country along the lines that serve them, right? And so in that regard, for example, mm -hmm. I was quite moved by the NSARS movement. So the NSARS movement in Nigeria became one occasion where Nigerian youth showed what was possible if they seized their fate in their own hands, right? So they right. really, mm -hmm. they accounted for that money, unlike politicians who don't the most part, They provided food. Oh, by the way, there was a lot of scandal about the, I don't know if you came across that, there was a lot of scandal about the um, uh, people that raised money, how they closed that account, and then when they were questioned, they said, well, would you question a man? About, it, was, it, was, it was a real um, convoluted yeah, no, conversation. No, no, but anyway, there, for the there, most part, there, they accounted there were, for it. There, there, were, there were problems, yes. obviously. Uh, but but, but, they, but, did, but they, they did better but, accounting than, than, yes. And, and they, you know, what moved me was they, their resilience. The fact that they, they cared for one another. So when somebody was sick, people gathered, cared for the person. If you were, you know, sort of suffering from heat stroke, there were people, young medical doctors who will give you treatment on the spot, tell you what to do, right? And that at the end of the day, they cleaned up the streets. Because Nigeria, just the physical dirtiness okay, of the Nigerian space speaks volumes about, sort of uh, connects, in my view, to the moral pollution in that space. You know? Right, true. On 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 that, I was going to say, you know, um, for those you hear a lot of a lot of pushback on on how corrupt a, bro a broken up nation might be. People will talk about um, the ethos, even if it's um, uh, Oduduwa ethos would be more adhered to, or the um, Abu Accord, for instance, is a is a shining light to what which really was. Um, even though it was at the end of the war, the Abu Accord was supposed to be a, a affirmation of what um um uh, you know the, the aspiration of, of what a biafra should yeah. be you would have that pushback you know down the line we'll talk about it a, a lot more um but you know on that note is a question of um, the next thing we're going to transition to and talk about is um you know that where it's in terms of um 
the current um, security situation, um, you know, most of us, whether in or out of the country, you get these videos. Um, I don't even bother watching half of them anymore. I'm just like, because I, you know, the sense of a lot, some of it is misinformation. Um, clearly, there was a piece this week by, there was a video piece this week by um, this thing that talked about how potent WhatsApp and all the social media messaging apps are in terms of spreading the misinformation. Yes, they are true, but a lot of the context, or a lot of the um, these things attached to them are not always, most of the time, are not even accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, people could bring out an old video or mm -hmm. attach a story that is not the case. Um, you know, so the, the instant messaging thing as well. But generally, when you talk to people, when you're having, in fact, I think the other day I was having a, were having a conversation with somebody, Brian, he's driving somewhere, it's like, ah, you know, the cops, uh, armed robbers, uh, he's stalling around, you know, live was like, but lots of these things are live action happening. It's like, whoa, you know, so it's, it, it's, I, I, I don't know what, 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 what are your thoughts on that, really? Just the, the, the current mm -hmm. level of um, um, insecurity. insecurity in the country. It's intolerable. Uh, insecurity has always been a problem in Nigeria um, and it's worsened over time. And I that things have come to a head uh, this particular time. And there are several factors. Um, one factor, um, of course, in 2009, with the emergence of Boko Haram, okay, um, they, they, the fact that this group uh, would declare war on the entire edifice of Nigerian society, uh, because of their antipathy to education, okay? And that they were willing to kill fellow Muslims, to bomb churches, and to bomb uh, civic spaces like bus stops, and of course to go to schools, and not only uh, destroy the schools, but also take a lot of the students, usually female students, as hostages. Um, the failure of the Nigerian state, but then even intensified under Buhari, which is one of those paradoxes. Uh, you could excuse Jonathan for being President Goodluck Jonathan for being um, lacking in the proper uh, security. Um, um, knowledge on how to combat this political, uh, this, this, uh, this new threat. Buhari, who had a military background and so on, and who specifically promised that once he took over, he was going to address this. And instead of it, it actually worsened. And not only did it worsen, but that the herdsmen, okay, uh, began to acquired a new sense of confidence. impunity and confidence <laughs> under his government yeah. uh, so that they will go to communities and pillage and rape and burn and kill and then settle without any fear of reprisals from the government. Because out of ways, the Nigerian state became a protector, a collaborator with criminals who committed the worst possible crimes. And that Buhari's 
antidote, so solution, as the blackmail of saying to every state, okay, you are going to give land as cattle colonies. That's the, that's the, that's the path to peace. In a serious country, he should have been impeached for his absolute inability to manage the threat that cattle rearers have posed uh, to Syria broadly. Okay? And it's not. Some people mistake. Some people think they are harassing people only in the southeast and southwest. No, it is a nationwide threat to security. And Buhari has shown an, a disinclination to address it at all. Okay? And then, once you have the state itself, the apparatus of the state, the police and other city apparatus, when you see them, when there's a perception that they are not interested in combating crime, if anything, that they want to fertilize crime, what you do is that you then energize criminal life within the space, and that's what's happening in Nigeria. Some years ago, I uh, first it first struck me that I was actually driving a car in Nigeria, and the police stopped me. And they accused me of stealing the car that I was driving, which belonged to my father-in-law. But they offered to release me if I would give them a bribe. And I said to them, if you believe for a second that I'm operating a car that I stole, I said, it's your duty as law enforcement officers to, in fact, arrest me and prosecute me. And they said, do you want to go to the station? I said, it should not be a choice. If you believe that I stole this car, that's what you must do. And they said, oh, if we go to the station, you'll be beaten. I said, no, you have no right to beat me. What I am, at worst, is a suspect who stole a car. And if I stole the car, it's your duty as police officers to take me in, investigate, and prosecute me. The judge will decide my punishment. It is not allowed you to beat me. Okay? They kept me for an hour and 40 minutes where they stopped me. Wasting my time, I was going to a meeting, wasting my time, expecting that at some point I would say, okay, here is money. But I would never reward somebody for calling me a thief. So if you say I stole it would be depraved on my part to now say, here is money. Okay? But that's what many Nigerians do. Okay? Um... So what we have is an, so what frightened me then was suppose for a moment that I had actually stolen the car. The police were willing to let me go if I would give them a bribe. So when you have that kind of space, the criminal no longer has the fear that should strike not when he or she contemplates a crime. Because all it takes is money. Okay? We know of a, a young man, Evans who was arrested some years ago for killing and so on. Oh, yeah. Evans, did he... Um, he has not... His case has not been... What happened? Never actually, I just felt nothing will happen anyway. I wouldn't be surprised mm. if Evans has been released and is living quietly in some part of Nigeria 
or has gone to a, a West African for the case to sort of blow over and people will forget and it comes back. But that's the thing about Nigeria, that when you are a criminal at a certain point and the worst criminals in Nigeria are where? They are in gun houses. Mm-hmm. If you consider how much resources are stolen by politicians, by political leaders, they're the worst criminals in the country. Yeah. And yet they're the ones who are given security by the police, uh, by the intelligence agencies and so on. So, um, so to get to your question uh, more directly, we have in Anambra State a recent um, spike. Uptake, this thing. Spike. Yeah, I've brought in things like, things like the ESN, that's the Eastern, um, Eastern Security, Security Network. Network. And some Eastern Security Network has said that they are not behind some of the assassinations, including the widely shocking and wildly viral uh, assassination of Dr. Chika Akunyele. Yeah. Okay. Eastern Security Network has denied culpability. But they have also been part of the violence in, in the Southeast. Uh, and I know that they think this is part of a struggle to achieve the Biafran uh, nation. Um, but I have problems with the use of violence in any struggle, broadly speaking, as a principle. But the, but the other thing is that once you create a space where policemen are no longer uh, in, 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 uh, in the space publicly in the southeast, yeah. Uh, there is uh, an election coming up next month, November. In the governorship. The governorship election in Anambra State. Mm-hmm. And so what you have is some people suspect that some of the political candidates are also using, sponsoring some of the events. Because if the uh, environment is, is violent, then voters will be intimidated uh, on election day and will not come come out and so it will be easier to rig the election i mean given i don't think i just don't think at this point in time people have any um political calculations to suppress a vote or turn out a vote they just don't care they're going to thumb print um mm-hmm. you know i i i must say it's not you know i don't i must say it doesn't get care that much mm-hmm. um we've had a situation in, in, in more than once if i'm not wrong in recent anambra in this fourth republic i believe which is called kidnap the governor, mm-hmm. force him to do what you want, literally. So, so, so you know, at this point in time, you know, yeah, people and, don't care. And by the way, remember that the governor, who at any rate was rigged in by the then ruling party, the Very PDP, true. but the governor was abducted in his own office, Imagine. pushed to the bathroom in his office, and compelled to read his resignation letter. Okay? <laughs> and who led the operation? an assistant inspector general of police Very okay, true. who had 200 policemen that he marshaled from Omar here, the uh, regional headers, mm-hmm. to go and commit a criminal, in fact, treasonable. I'm sure he got promoted after that. Uh, he was the only, uh, you know, he was quietly uh, retired mm. and he died soon after. Listen, I thought, when you get, to, when we look at it, like when we look at the um, you know, we have all these. Uh, it's it's interesting, like with Buhari, the uh, the head 
or you know the um it, it, it's it's gotten worse but it's always been there mm-hmm. there had always been conversations even in the 50s 60s about um, um headers and where to put them and all and you know that that's uh, for the most part it, it would seem more of a political conversation um than any other thing um the reason why it get, it's it all it 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 has exploded so much more it's always been there i remember years ago people had been talking about it now you have it there the reason why it's expo- more you know probably like you said part of that um uh the buhari administration for sure um because they seem determined to suppress certain things like going after mm-hmm. the esn mm-hmm. with all the things they have chasing people that talk about secession like the buho um namdi kalu or any other person that mentions it even in passing mm-hmm. but they don't seem to want the, the government doesn't seem to turn its attention to this thing so it's not a question of you know if you remember in, in, in 83 when shagari was it 82 i think it was 80, 82 81 when shagari was in power where they had um uh this thing from niger republic and then they sent the uh, military to to quell them mm-hmm. to the point that buhari was the one in charge and then buhari um chases them into niger state even against the presidential order at that point in time um and that was where um what they call him um shagari has to turn to i believe it was wushishi was then chief of that i believe um had to turn to wushishi and then you know tell him to rein in buhari and all that and then from that moment um the the, the according to according to according to the distant the sources then like buhari held for shagari at that point in time um obviously prior to that he was he was in the government and all that um before the civilians came back in but the most important part is that um you had a guy that had this image of being in nonsense chase all this you know but it's it if you a deeper look at it shows that this is a guy that can be selective in terms of his mm-hmm. his standness yeah. um but obviously the question is you know if you're not um taking security as a paramount thing and it's not a question of like oh the end um, SAS the SAS police units i don't believe that is this thing. you could talk about the number of policemen to to in terms of the number of policemen to, to police the population mm-hmm. and the fact that more than half by most accounts more than half of these policemen are guarding uh, VIPs you know you could you could have that conversation mm-hmm. but just like in terms of like why you know but you know it's interesting to you know how people are living day to day with the kind of videos i mean i feel like you know I, like i was having a conversation yesterday with families and it it felt like most of them don't even go out unless they have to yeah yeah there's uh, i mean what to first focus on buhari a lot rides on the shoulder of of the lead uh buhari's um body language is it suggests that he sees himself as a president of a section of the country and therefore as some whose duty is to suppress the other part of the country um that he sort of has very low regard for so he doesn't see himself he doesn't sit down when events happen and he says what's a solution to this event that will be a properly broadly nigerian solution he thinks of how do i solve this problem for the constituency that this very narrow 
parochial constituency that he sees himself um, uh, embedded with. That's one, one problem. But what you say is, is indeed true. Um, the ETAS movement <clears throat> led to a public commitment by the government to dis disband the SARS and, and, and to, uh, to address issues of police brutality in Nigeria. That commitment was made in October of last year. In December, I went to Nigeria for a month. And I had the, um, but the fortune, because of what I got to learn, but also the ill fortune of going by road from Lagos to Anambra State. A trip that should have taken no more than seven hours, took 13 hours, almost a 13 and a half hours, so almost a doubling of the time. And mostly because the Nigerian police still hearken to this very tried and failed system of law enforcement. So the whole idea in Nigeria of fighting crime is to mount roadblocks on streets and highways. And so in some stretches of the highway, every mile there was another roadblock. And this was a heavily trafficked mall because so many people were leaving Lagos to go to uh, Edo State and uh, Delta State and you know Ondo and so, so the, the, the December and, December and rush towards those areas. So those ethnic nationalities that tend so, to like so, so here we were stopped at every point and when they stopped you when they stopped people we were fortunate I was riding in a vehicle with a government official so he showed on his license plate that it was a state government an embarrassment official so they would look at his license plate and wave him on but we saw buses and other commuters that they had stopped that they were harassing for bribes and in some cases you could see um, a measure of violence being meted out to innocent travelers Okay, so nothing has changed in the culture of the police in their engagement with Nigerians. Nothing has changed, or should I say little has changed. Little or nothing has changed in the corruption within the police force itself. A police force who, so when I was, during my visit in Nigeria, I have a relative who has a, a KK uh, vehicle. The police, you know, um, stopped his driver and they were about to beat him up, so he ran away. And they planted two bullets, they put two bullets and said, oh, we discovered bullets on, in, in, in your vehicle. So not a gun, but two bullets. And so they seized this relative's uh, vehicle. And when he went to the, train sta to, to the police station, to retrieve his vehicle, they were asking him to provide a bribe. It was clear to them that this is a tactic, okay? The driver had committed no crime, okay? Nobody in the vehicle in, in this contraption had committed a crime, but the police was a criminal element that planted this, this bullet in order to extract a bribe. So, I will say, 
the part of the crisis in Nigeria is that you have a police force which is addressed as a police force. You know, uh, you would not expect that when the police are properly conceived that there will be a force. You can talk about them. But the police should simply be a law enforcement agency. But the police force in Nigeria is in the business of harassing law-abiding citizens. And when they encounter criminals, either they take off if the criminals are armed mm -hmm. and flee, or we just talked about a well-known kidnapper who was arrested to great fanfare. Nobody has heard anything about Ban's case. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows where he is. In a country where, of course, the media is active and alive to their duties, these questions will be asked. And therefore, some uh, the police will be held to account. So um, part of the reason things are um, in, in bad shape is that you have the confluence of Boko Haram, the herdsmen, and some people will say they are the same now, but also you have politically driven violence, and then you have just the ordinary criminals emboldened because they see that the system for fighting crime is fundamentally non-existent. Yeah, yeah, it's it, 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 you're right, man. The moment you say something, say Boko Haram and the Earthman are the same, it just you know, harps back to what we're talking about in terms of people don't pay attention to the history, they don't they don't teach history. Um, I mean, Boko Haram is clearly a religious issue, which is almost certainly followed by poverty um, um, and the ills of leadership. Um, if you go back to um, the, the, the connections, not not always direct, but if you go back to it, you see the headsman is more of a political issue, which, you know, sometimes it does intersect to a certain degree, in it, but not really. Um, but yeah, overall, people don't, and, and the situation of that, we're just, it's every time you turn on the phone, WhatsApp messaging, I mean, I, I've considered deleting my WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like it's um, yeah the, the the amount of gory pictures that, yeah. and videos that Nigerians are happy to circulate, yeah. and uh, even the way that we use uh, we use WhatsApp. I mean, somebody called me the other day after Dr. Chika Akunilo was killed. They thought, did you see the uh, video of somebody who was beheaded and they were uh, you know people were kicking around the head? I said, no. He said, oh, let me send it to you. I said, I don't want to see such things. I said, because if I can watch a video, in fact, if any human being tells me he or she would watch the video of, a, a, of the head of a human being kicked about, um, I'll be scared of that person. Because it means is that your own humanity has been so eroded. For you to look at something so gruesome, so unspeakable, unspeakably evil. Um, it is a short step from looking at it to actually participate in the dehumanization of a fellow human. Yeah, yeah. You could, you could. Once you start looking at it that much, you start mentally thinking about it. Yeah. Um, you know, the last thing I'm going to talk about this time is just um, just now is um, is the the economic situation. You know. To me, it's always been, if you look at the history, then you have literally neo-colonialists um, taking over as leaders, uh, masquerading as leaders, and, and 
creating a neo-colonial political class. Sorry for all the big grammar. Mm. Uh, neo-colonial <laughs> political class, which you know one has tried to, which essentially perpetuates itself. Um, you know, unless you, uh, you meet the neo-colonial, you know, and then the end, the end effect of that is you, you, you will see rich people in Nigeria. But at the end of the day, you have so much poverty and with the growing population you have the multiplication of poverty at a very, mm-hmm. very, very fast rate mm-hmm. and plusness and all that. So just in terms of the economic situation, man, you know, looking at Naira, looking at the CBN guide, the CBN governor, mm-hmm. um, talking about Abuki FX, like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and looking at it, it, it it's, it's all comic, it's all funny, um, but at the same time, it's all serious because um, that is a large part of feeding into mm-hmm. um a lot of the things that are going on there. So economically, I mean, I don't know. Oh no, like how you feel about it? Well, um, again, um, Nigeria has always had profound economic problems. Those problems are achieving a particular intensity today because of several factors. One key factor is the sharp fluctuation in uh, oil revenue earnings for the country, right? That for all the years when oil was such a dominant part of the conversation in the world, Nigeria failed to do the basic investments in infrastructure and so on and to engage in any diversification of the economy. Okay? So we just depended on oil. It's as if somebody had promised us that for 500 years, oil will continue to be the central part of the engine of the world. Oil is still a very important part of um, of, of lives, economic, the economy of the world, but it is clearly trending downward, and especially with concerns for environmental issues, we are seeing in this country and in Europe and Asia even, we're seeing um, a dramatic um, uh, conversation about removing the imprint of fossil fuel from uh, from the infrastructure of, of economic development. So we're going to, we're facing the consequences of that, that we squandered our oil wealth and now, uh, there was a point a couple of years ago where the price of oil was so low, where there was a glut in the oil market that almost uh, former um, countries are used to import almost would say to exporting countries, you drink your oil you want. <laughs> At a point in time, even last year, I think oil went uh, uh, negative. Precisely. Yes. Well, you know, so it didn't make sense to continue to produce. And we're going to see, there's, you know, because uh, the, President Biden has slowed um, sort of the local production, so we're going to see a little rise in importation and so on. But ultimately, oil is on its way out. And so there's a particular urgency in Nigeria, therefore, to come creative, innovative ideas if we're going to have any kind of economy going forward. Was it last year or earlier this year that the governor of Edo State basically said that the government printed money 
to distribute to the states because there was no money. And they, I think the minister for finance in the country denied it. But the central bank essentially said that that's what happened, that we printed money. So the U.S. government can afford to print money, you know, mm -hmm. Much of the economic activities in the world are denominated in the dollar. So the dollar, that there is almost an international consensus for the health of the dollar. Very other, very few other countries can afford to just print money and, and, and give. So oil is key, and the, 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 the outlook for oil is, is poor because many countries are now talking about how do we uh, alternative uh, sources for energy, right? Um, then you find COVID, which has dislocated uh, 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 world economies. I was just reading before I got into the article, but I think just yesterday or so, the World Bank gave an outlook on economic uh, uh, growth and so on that is really very bleak. And if bleak for Western economies, it's going to be much bleaker for the poor economies in Africa, and especially for a country like Nigeria, where we've already habituated ourselves to a certain level of consumption, and we can't afford that level of consumption. Then within Nigeria, also you're going to find disparities between, uh, because that's what happened globally, that the shutdown of the economy. Uh, around the world actually created a, a, a deeper, uh, a, a more dramatic disparity between the few wealthy in the, in the world and then the poorer, the yeah. poorer uh, ones. And Nigeria is a country where, indeed, when we talk about economic problems, it's of different gradations, okay? Um, even the wealthy in Nigeria are poor in ways that sometimes they recognize. Okay. I agree. Okay. So, and, uh, um, and then the poor are so poor that you go to funerals, which is part of why funerals have become huge uh, carnivals, say, in the southeastern part of the country, and I know in other parts of Nigeria as well because there are people who look forward to funerals at weekends because that's where they get one meal that you can call a meal, okay? Uh, the kinds of things that people eat in Nigeria, okay? Uh, it's unconscionable that people are reduced to that kind of existence. Uh, a friend of mine went to visit somebody in his hometown and as he came, this person hit something that he was eating underneath the, uh, his table. But this friend stayed on and on and on. And so finally his friend said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I was eating when you came. And he caught a rat and roasted there. That's what he was eating from meat. Wow. Okay. So that's where we're pushing people. Um, so as, as I said, even the wealthy in Nigeria, when you have a private jet, when you have Rolls Royces, but the road is not there. You die in accidents, okay? Because the roads don't exist. When you have no medical facilities worthy of the name, when you must be flown abroad for your medical treatment, you are not, don't have anything. When you see 
even the most affluent neighborhoods in Nigeria, okay? Homes that will cost $10 million were there in this country or more. And, but in front of that is an open gutter. And in that open gutter is brackish water. And in that brackish water is the, 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 the corpse of, of, of a dog that some car had hit and it's died in the brackish water and it's bloated, okay? About to, you know, explode. And it's smelling, but people walk that street and people, you know, live within the spaces. This poverty. So uh, when you have no access to water, no access to electricity, when you have to run environmentally harmful generators to give yourself power, electric power. So Nigeria, I see Nigeria simply as a space of poverty, period, right? But then there are gradations of poverty within that space. And the most poor uh, are to live in like animals. And you can't sustain it. You can't. Yeah, well, that... Um it's a very chilling uh, distance uh, to go through, but yeah, um, yeah. I think for for um, I don't know. I have to figure out that. Um, oh man, it's I don't know. It's sometimes I'm speechless when I hear stuff like that. Just mm -hmm. it's just crazy. So um, at least for today, probably going to um, um, put the pause and um, you know. Um, hope for the best yes. overall and um, yeah hope for the best and we have to work for the best yeah. and I think that if this podcast means anything for me and I'm sure in our commissions that what it means to you as well that this is our contribution this is a kind of wake up call to Nigerians uh, to our fellow citizens in that country that uh, we cannot afford complacency, that we must rise and do what it takes in order to attempt, we're not guaranteed success, but we have to attempt to save that space for ourselves, for future generations, but just also for the world, because Nigeria is so important in the world. Um, and the country cannot continue to muck around and be governed by the least enlightened elements. Very true. Very true. On that note, uh, we will see you guys on the next episode. Pretty much. Thanks, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks.